Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Prosecutors have incredible power in the American justice system, determining whether and against whom criminal charges are brought. Today we'll be talking about prosecutorial discretion and some of the most controversial cases in recent history, including police killings and high-profile sexual misconduct. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're joined remotely by two former prosecutors turned law professors, Professor Green and Professor Royfi. Welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you so much. It's really nice to be here. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. Well, it is our pleasure. Professor Royfi, maybe you can set the stage a little bit. What are some of the powers that prosecutors actually have in our judicial system? They have a huge amount of power. And part of the reason they have so much power is because they have so much discretion. And discretion comes up at almost every stage of a prosecution. So what investigations to pursue. Sometimes a prosecutor will have that ability to choose that, what charges to bring, if charges are warranted. Plea bargaining is huge since most cases resolve in plea bargains. So power to determine what plea to offer, recommend sentences to the court. They can determine trial tactics. Robert Jackson, who who was the Supreme Court justice before then, was the attorney general of the United States under FDR. And he gave a famous speech that people look at when they're talking about prosecutorial discretion. And he said, essentially, that, you know, second only to the military, prosecutors have the power to destroy people's lives. And part of the reason is, of course, even putting someone through the agony of a trial, even if it ends in an acquittal, is pretty horrifying. I don't think anybody would want to have to go through that. And also, we we have a system where, first of all, the the sentences can be very, very high for, for crimes compared to other countries. And, and also, you know, in the United States, we don't expect prosecutors to bring charges in every case where there might be sufficient evidence in order to prosecute somebody. And so the part of the prosecutor's authority is decide who among those the prosecutor thinks are provably guilty should be prosecuted. And of course, that's an enormous power as well. So I certainly agree with Becky that, you know, prosecutors are among the most powerful public officials, and part of it is uh, attributable to their incredible discretion. We're going to be talking about discretion and how prosecutors determine whether and what charges to bring. Remind us, what are the factors that are being considered? The only consideration that is ethically required to be considered is, is there probable cause? So the prosecutors focus initially on the sufficiency of the evidence. Is this somebody who apparently committed a crime? Now, most prosecutors are not going to bring indictments when there's merely probable cause, although in misdemeanor cases, it may be that prosecutors don't spend very much time looking at the file before they go forward. But the principal thing, at least initially, is, is this somebody who committed a crime? And one of the interesting questions is, how convinced do you have to be as the prosecutor before you bring a case? Maybe break that down a little bit. Probable cause doesn't necessarily mean that you're more certain than not that the person is actually guilty. 
Probable cause is a fair likelihood of guilt. It's what you need for the police to make an arrest rather than just a stop on the street. It's what they need for a judge to issue a search warrant. Um, lots of search warrants are issued based on probable cause to believe that evidence will be found someplace, and then it's not found, right? You don't have to be right. You don't have to be certain. It's not as much as clear and convincing evidence. It's probably not as much as you would need to win a civil case. Uh, maybe it is, you know, more like, likely than not. But it's a pretty low standard. You mentioned ethics and prosecutorial ethical standards. Where is that actually being determined? Every state court adopts rules of professional conduct. In most cases, really in all cases, they're based to a large degree on a model adopted by the ABA, the ABA model rules of professional conduct. Although the rules apply to lawyers in general, there is a rule that applies to prosecutors in particular. It's rule 3.8 of the ABA model rules of professional conduct. In essentially every state, it's the rule 3.8 of, say, the New York rules or the New Jersey rules. And it deals with special responsibilities of a prosecutor. They're not too many provisions. Some of the most controversial decisions recently on whether or not to prosecute involve police killings. One of the most emotional cases involves the killing of Breonna Taylor in her own home. Professor Royfi, maybe you can explain. So the attorney general in that case was appointed as a special prosecutor, and he had to decide whether or not to charge the officers with murder. They were executing a warrant late at night, and that the warrant that was authorized was a no-knock warrant, and that means that they can go in without knocking or announcing their presence. And in fact, it turned out that they did announce their presence, or at least there were witnesses who said that they did announce their presence. When they opened the door, Brianna Taylor's boyfriend had a gun and shot one of the officers in the leg, and the other officers then fired um, into the apartment and killed Brianna Taylor. So the question was whether or not the prosecutors were going to charge these police officers with murder. The boyfriend in this case actually had a legal permit for the gun and claims that he was genuinely afraid for his life. That's right. He was arrested and then they released him and decided not to charge him with a crime because there was an initial question about whether he should be charged with attempted murder for shooting the officer in the leg. But I think it's very clear at this point that he owned his gun legally and he thought that these were people breaking into his house and feared for his own life. So then there was a question once the prosecutors determined that the boyfriend wasn't culpable about whether or not the officers were. What were some of the prosecutorial decisions that were raised by that case? The attorney general decided not to bring charges. He did convene a grand jury, and he charged one of the officers actually with a minor crime that wasn't the shooting of Brianna Taylor, but did not charge the other officers and did not charge murder, concluding that in his view, after looking at all the evidence, the officers were acting in self-defense. So as happens in these cases, he was subject to a huge amount of criticism for that decision and also for how he handled this publicly in terms of the media and his presentation. So part of what he did right here is analyze the evidence. So he made it very clear that his office was waiting for the ballistics evidence. He went slowly. He reassured the public in the beginning that he was looking at this evidence carefully. That he did right. He then 
convened a grand jury. He went into the grand jury. Now, it seems fairly clear at this point that when he went into the grand jury, he had a, he had a conclusion in mind, which was not to have the grand jury indict the officers in that case for murder. What makes you think that there was uh, an agenda there? We have a glimpse into this prosecution that we don't normally have. He did present them with certain legal charges and murder was not one of them. So he had, and, and you, you know, when you say he had an agenda, it sounds sinister. I, I do think prosecutors ought to, when they go into a grand jury, have an idea of what the right outcome should be. I think generally prosecutors don't go into the grand jury with a sense of, up, oh, just going to throw this stuff up in the air and see where it all lands. You are the advisor to the grand jury. And so you have a role there. What's problematic about this case is that when the attorney general presented it to the public, he acted as if the grand jury was an ind- fully independent check on his authority. And that is not true. It is not true in this case, and it's not generally true of grand jury. As Professor Green said, it's a bit of a check, but it's certainly not an independent body making this determination on its own. And so he led the grand jury. He led it where he wanted it to go. There's nothing wrong with that. But when he got up and, and, and represented to the public that the grand jury actually made this determination on its own or implied that, I do think that was problematic. This case and the police killing cases in general raise a lot of issues. And maybe we could talk about them one at a time or collectively. But, you know, one issue is, which we discussed already, how convinced do you have to be of guilt? All you need is probable cause to get the grand jury to indict. But is that really going to be enough? How likely is it that you'll actually win a conviction? So one of the issues that prosecutors think about, the rules don't require it, uh, but they think about is at the end of the day, am I going to get a conviction? And if I'm not, even if I have probable cause, is it fair to have the defendants go through this process? One of the rare cases of, you know, a civilian dying in the police hands was brought by Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore. That was the Freddie Gray case. And Freddie Gray was taken into custody by the police and driven around very roughly, uh, his head banged on the, the ceiling of the police car or van, and he ultimately died. And the Maryland prosecutor sought and obtained indictments against some of the police officers. And one of the cases went to trial, the officer or officers were acquitted, and then the rest of the cases were dismissed. In retrospect, if you're a prosecutor and you suspect that at the end of the day, a jury is going to find a reasonable doubt and a police officer is going to end up being acquitted, do you bring the case because you're personally convinced of guilt, assuming you are? Or do you say it's not a legitimate use of prosecutorial power to sort of make a point to maybe address the public interest in seeing the case brought if you don't expect to get a conviction? So that's an additional issue that I think are brought in the police cases. Another one is, and this is a different aspect of discretion, your stance before the grand jury Do you uh, tell them your opinion? Do you tell them you think the evidence is sufficient to obtain uh, an indictment at the very least? Yeah, that's a good question. Can the prosecutor stand up in front of the grand jury and put their finger on the scale and say, look, I think we have enough to convict 
I think we don't have enough to convict? I, I think the question is really, can they not do that? Because in fact, prosecutors are legal advisors to the grand jury. They draft an indictment. They present the evidence. Of course, they're expressing an opinion implicitly, if not explicitly. If you're an ordinary grand jury and seeing lots of cases, in case after case, you're indicting and the prosecutor is asking you to do that. And so obviously, the prosecutor wouldn't even bring a case if they're not going to seek an indictment. And so the question becomes, in the one case, say a police shooting case, where the prosecutor purportedly presents the evidence in a neutral way, and says, I'm not expressing an opinion one way or the other, I leave it to you, that's signaling. And so, in effect, if you do that, I think it, it's misleading to suggest that you're actually being neutral, when from the grand jury's perspective, obviously, they know you're treating the case differently, and that you're at the very least ambivalent about the case of not disfavoring bringing the indictment. And so, I think that goes on in some types of cases, but particularly in the police shooting cases. Is that because these cases, there's just so much public pressure to act that the prosecutor's office wants to at least appear that they're taking it seriously? Well, it gets to another question in these cases, which is a question about conflicts of interest and who ought to present the case, which prosecutor should investigate and present it, and, and if it's indicted, prosecute. And so uh, prosecutors are in a difficult position. If you're the St. Louis or Staten Island or Baltimore prosecutor, and in case after case, you have interactions with the police, you depend upon them to investigate, you depend upon them to be witnesses in your cases, and then you bring uh, an indictment of police officers, that's clearly historically gonna undermine your relationship with the police in general. And so it's not that you have a personal self-interest. It's not like you're, you uh, have the kind of conflict of interest where you stand to make money or you, as an individual, have a relationship to someone. Your office institutionally has a relationship with the police department, and you have to be uh, cognizant of that and concerned about it. So I want to jump in on the grand jury point because I do think prosecutors use the grand jury in a slightly different way um, sometimes in these police shooting cases. And it, it really is, I think important for people to understand that, and, and most people don't, which is that sometimes what prosecutors are doing, and I do think this is legitimate, is going into the grand jury when they think charges are not appropriate in order to lay all the evidence out so that they can then ultimately make that evidence public. So normally the grand jury is secret and you never see what happens. But for instance, in Ferguson, I mean, this was a very famous case, very high profile. And there was a lot of pressure. And ultimately, the court um, at the prosecutor's request made the minutes of the grand jury public. And so I do think that that unlike run-of-the-mill cases, sometimes that act is actually useful because then it allows the public to see what the prosecutor saw and to see what the grand jurors saw. And that can actually be an important aspect of a case like this. What, what about in that case? What evidence was disclosed that was perhaps helpful? I may be a little bit rusty on the details, but the, it, was a, it was a police shooting and there was a question about whether the police 
reasonably feared for their lives. And they're, and one of the main issues, one of the main pieces of evidence in the grand jury was the ballistics. So there was an analysis of the ballistics. And one of the, I think, what witnesses testified that he had his hands up and that he was shot, possibly even in the back. I can't remember exactly. This was a case in which it seemed to everybody this officer should be charged. And when you looked at the ballistics evidence, it at least raised a reasonable doubt about the officer's culpability. And so seeing that is something that we normally, if somebody isn't charged, we don't get to see at all what happens in the grand jury. But in a case like this, it's already high profile. It's not like that defendant is going to be, that police officer is going to be hurt by having this made public because now all of a sudden everybody knows that he was a, he was a defendant. Everybody knew that anyway. So what happens here is that there is a, a possibility for exoneration <laughs> that can happen in this particular way that, that I do think when it works you know, there, there are, as, as Professor Green was saying, so many possible moments at which prosecutors can act badly in these cases. But if they act well, this can actually be an important form of transparency that can create a check on their power or, or a way in which they can be transparent about their use of their power that can be helpful and, and, and good. I think it's worth underscoring, though, that the police shooting cases where the grand jury minutes end up becoming public are the exception. And, and so in the overwhelming majority of criminal cases where prosecutors do not bring charges, you have no idea why they don't. Once in a blue moon, if it's a high profile case, there may be a press release or press conference where the prosecutor says something. Although in general, it's problematic for prosecutors to say much because if they say, for example, we thought this defendant was guilty but the evidence just wasn't compelling enough to get a conviction. You're besmirching someone's reputation in a context where they don't get to defend themselves. So prosecutors are very leery of explaining why they don't bring cases. And, and when they do bring cases as well, the issue of their thought process is not going to be litigated. And so the internal deliberations are generally not going to become public. It's a very, very rare case where somebody can move to dismiss an indictment based on prosecutorial misconduct in bringing charges. Another area where prosecutorial discretion has hit the news involves criminal allegations related to the protests around some of these police killings and the Black Lives Matter movement. Professor Royfi, maybe you can weigh in on some of the decisions that you've seen that raise interesting questions about prosecutors. So there are interesting questions on both ends of this case. So one, there were there have been federal charges brought against some of these protesters, which is unusual in most run-of-the-mill cases like this, where there's property damage or you know looting. Those are state crimes, and they're usually handled by state prosecutors. It is was clearly an uh, interest of. Bill Barr's um, Department of Justice to bring these crimes and bring these cases. And um, some of them have extremely heavy sentences, the federal crimes associated with, with these particular acts. And so that was a, a controversial decision. This reflects somewhat how problematic our federal criminal law is, that we have created federal criminal, criminal acts that would cover these sorts of things. It is the kind of thing that should be brought on the state level. But over the past decades, the 
criminal law within states, but particularly federal criminal law has expanded so significantly to involve all sorts of things that really have nothing to do with the national government and therefore would not normally need to be brought by the federal government. And that just gives a huge amount of discretion leeway for federal prosecutors if they want to jump in here for political reasons to bring these cases. How about on the state level? There have been some cities or states where prosecutors have gone the other direction. Yeah, absolutely. So there have been some local prosecutors who have made determinations that they weren't going to enforce the laws against protesters, at least for some minor crimes. And that also is a kind of decision that we allow elected prosecutors to make. They can decline to prosecute whole sets of crimes. And recently, as there are more progressive prosecutors, increasingly they are making those decisions not to bring cases criminal cases in whole categories of of criminal acts. One aspect of of prosecutorial discretion that we haven't talked so much about yet, but that this really underscores, is the the traditional notion that prosecutors should not overcharge in in the sense of that they should not charge more serious crimes than is warranted under the, the particular facts of the case. So there's a notion of proportionality, right? Because, you know, we have codes of criminal law with so many charges in them and lots of ranges of sentencing discretion for judges. And it gives prosecutors a lot of leeway and choices about what charges to bring. And so here, it really sort of underscores that the particular uh, criminal justice philosophy of the prosecutor uh, can make a big difference. Somebody could look at you know, wrongdoing by protesters as truly very serious or not very serious, depending upon what your approach to criminal justice is. And here we saw cases where Attorney General Barr actually went after prosecutors in some jurisdictions and even viewed it as evidence that the particular cities the prosecutors were in were anarchist cities or or, or cities that just weren't adequately enforcing the criminal law, whereas the prosecutors in some of these cases, just as a matter of proportionality, did not think that the particular crimes involved required people to be in prison for you know, years and years or, or, or decades. And so one of the things you do when you elect a prosecutor is elect somebody for their exercise of judgment about how to exercise their discretion. And now, More than ever, I think that's relevant because we have so many alternatives to criminal prosecution. We have courts such as, you know, drug courts and mental health courts that reflect the idea that lots of things that could be charged as a crime are really mental health issues or social problems and can be addressed and maybe should be addressed in other ways. And so whether you're a sort of traditional throw the book at them prosecutor who just thinks every crime ought to be prosecuted, or you're somebody who thinks you ought to be making individual decisions about uh, whether someone is truly deserving of loss of liberty or whether there's another way, a less harsh way to deal with it. That's a matter of discretion. People are running nowadays on how they'll exercise prosecutorial discretion. Maybe you can give a quick contrast on how two prosecutors could use discretion on, let's say, for example, a looting charge and come to different outcomes? 
elections have consequences. And when you choose your political official who's appointing the prosecutor or you choose your prosecutor directly on most local elections, you are choosing to elect or uh, have appointed a prosecutor with a particular philosophy. And you could have a prosecutor has a philosophy that those kinds of crimes are extremely serious. These are small businesses. They are usually not run by wealthy people. And those sorts of property crimes are extremely serious. And we really want to deter people from engaging in those particular kinds of crimes. And so we are going to pile on those charges, as many as we can, to both punish the person and to send a message to the public that this is unacceptable. You could have a different prosecutor who is extremely sympathetic with the Black Lives Matter protesters and thinks, well, yes, these are crimes. There may be reasons why people in the heat of the moment might do something that they then regret. And those prosecutors can make any number of choices. They can choose not to prosecute those crimes at all, or they could choose to prosecute them in such a way that the person either serves no jail time or a very short sentence. And those are legitimate choices for a prosecutor to make. I mean, going back to our initial point about why prosecutors wield so much power, it's because they make those kinds of decisions. And um, there, are, there are significant consequences for the individual and for the community at large. I think a, a point worth underscoring here is that there's no professional or societal consensus on how prosecutors should use their power in, in cases like this. And so for example, the American Bar Association, the criminal justice section, which represents prosecutors, defense lawyers, judges, and some academics, puts out what's essentially guidelines. It's not enforceable law for prosecutors and, and gives advice about how prosecutors should deal with lots of issues. And yet when it comes to prosecutorial discretion, pretty much the best that the Bar Association can do is list a lot of factors and then say, um, you know, pretty much it's up to you as a prosecutor. And, and so uh, I think historically it's true that uh, pendulums can go back and forth and, and prosecutors in part responding to public pressure one way or the other or public sentiments can take different philosophies or prosecutors just may be given a lot of leeway by the public and, and can indulge their own philosophies about how prosecutorial power ought to be wielded. A quick pause for those attorneys listening for Sealy Credit. The code for this interview is 22991. Again, that's 22991. And now back to the interview. Another area where prosecutorial discretion has been incredibly controversial involves allegations of sexual misconduct perhaps none more so than the Jeffrey Epstein case. What happened in that case and why was it complicated in terms of prosecutorial discretion? Basically, the, the, the facts of the uh, Epstein case were that, um, you know, he was at least reputedly, I don't know if he a multimillionaire who had proper in an island or property on an island and was essentially both using underage women to satisfy his own sexual predilections and also trafficking them for the benefit of other men. That was what the investigation showed. And in, initially, there was an investigation in Florida and Palm Beach by both the state and by the FBI uh, into the allegations. And determination was made by the, the federal prosecutor's office 
that uh, Epstein was indictable. One of the issues was about prosecutors' communications with the underage women, the victims of Epstein, and whether they were going to have a right to weigh in on how the case ought to be treated. Ultimately, the federal prosecutor's office made a deal with Epstein where the federal prosecution would not go forward, and in exchange, Epstein would plead guilty to some minor offenses in state court. Essentially, none of the victims were notified in advance, so they didn't have an opportunity to object to the resolution. And the resolution in included uh, creation of uh, a process for the victims to receive civil restitution. And when the victims and their lawyers learned that they'd be basically been cut out of the process, they brought a lawsuit in Florida to try to reopen the federal criminal case. And that resulted in the discovery of a lot of information about the decision-making process and the interactions between the federal prosecutors and Epstein's lawyers, of which there were many and many well-paid. And what did they uncover in the process? They did not, I don't think, uncover what they ultimately determined to be corruption on the part of the federal prosecutors. The prosecutors, I think it's generally agreed, made really, really bad judgments. And a federal court found that they violated the federal victims' rights laws by uh, misleading the victims. But ultimately, it was clear that the, the prosecutors had somebody who could have been charged with crimes that would have put him in prison for life, essentially, and gave him a pass. And that was pretty much inexplicable to most of the viewers. Now, ultimately, the federal prosecutors in New York looked into the case because there was also jurisdiction in New York. They did bring charges against Epstein, and he, he took his own life in prison, and that, that sort of mooted out the federal criminal case in New York. But the interesting question was about why did federal prosecutors basically give Epstein a free ride and such lenient treatment in, in Florida? And, and so that exposed, I think, the decision-making process in a way that it's rare for prosecutors' decision-making processes to be exposed. Was part of the calculus that they were afraid of the, the cost and the, the legal muscle that Epstein could bring to bear? Obviously, the, the, you know, the Epstein had very high-powered, high-paid lawyers. But I, don't, I didn't see uh, in the evidence too much worry about the inability to win a case. There were some jurisdictional questions and maybe other questions, but the, the fact is that the prosecutors drafted an indictment that was around 30 pages, and they made it clear that they thought they could win the case. And so I, I think their explanation was more, they thought justice was done by the resolution because the women received money they received compensation or, or would have the opportunity to do that. And there would be a conviction in, in, on the Florida state side, and he would have to, Epstein would have to register as a sex offender. Now, it turns out that in the end of the day, the punishment on the state side was pretty laughable, although Epstein was jailed in, by the state. He was allowed out during the day, and he had his own 
private security and he got treated pretty well in jail. And he was able to litigate so that his sex offender status did not carry with it very much of a burden. And so in retrospect, at least, it looked like he'd really gotten incredibly favorable treatment for a sex offender who'd probably deserve to be in prison for life. But I think at least the way the federal prosecutors justified it, even in retrospect, was that they were exercising their discretion to achieve what they thought was a fair outcome. He got a little bit of punishment. He got public opprobrium. He got a conviction. He got sex offender status. He had to pay money. The victims obviously didn't see it the same way. I'll just jump in and say one thing um, generally about Me Too and Black Lives Matter, which is something that's worth noting because we've been talking about the exercise of prosecutorial discretion and particularly consequences of elections and how different prosecutors have different philosophies. So one thing to note about these cases is that normal political alignments don't always exactly fit with a particular exercise of prosecutorial discretion across all kinds of cases. And you see in these cases that when they're when the defendant is a police officer or wealthy, powerful white man accused of sexual assault, that the same people who are calling for leniency in other sorts of cases are calling for often a very punitive response and, a, and they want prosecutors to act in a way that is would normally be tough on crime um, in these particular kinds of cases. Now they have reasons. It's not that that's an unreasonable thing. They, they, they would say because of, you know, historically these sorts of defendants have been given lax treatment and this is a corrective. But it is worth noting that people's attitudes towards the way in which prosecutors ought to exercise their discretion changes sometimes with the category of people who are being charged with a crime. We talked about discretion. Now let's talk about abuse. How are prosecutors held accountable? Well, I mean, the short answer to that is frequently they're not. Um, that uh, there are very rarely are there disciplinary cases brought against prosecutors. And even more rare are those cases that are sanctioning lawyers, sanctioning prosecutors for abuse of discretion. It does happen on occasion. Uh, one high-profile case was the Duke lacrosse case. If you remember, there was a prosecutor in that case who charged the Duke lacrosse players with sexual assault. And in, in the end, it turned out that he had hid some material, some Brady material, some exculpatory material that he was supposed to turn over to the defense. And he was actually ultimately brought up on disciplinary charges. Charges, but that's the exception to the general rule, which is that we don't generally hold prosecutors accountable. That said, there are other ways in which prosecutors are held accountable, sometimes in their own offices, sometimes courts will publicly shame prosecutors by mentioning them in an in in opinion and mentioning that person by name. They can, of course, sanction the prosecutors, though that also happens fairly rarely. And, you know, there are, on occasion, you can have your case reversed if you engage in serious sorts of abuse. But the, the takeaway from this is really a lot of abuses of discretion go either unnoticed or noticed and unpunished. So I would add, it's tr true in general that prosecutorial misconduct is not sanctioned through the disciplinary process. But it's particularly true with respect to the abuse of discretion, precisely because it's discretionary. 
So prosecutors are not subject to a legal standard other than you can't bring charges without probable cause. And that's, it's rare for prosecutors to do that. And so other things that we would think of as an abuse of discretion, like bringing charges that are too harsh or bringing charges for the wrong reason or treating different defendants who are similarly situated in different ways or proceeding with uh, not enough evidence, even though you do have probable cause or other things that we just think are misuses of power are things that disciplinary lawyer disciplinary authorities can't address because the lawyer rules don't address those questions. In those capacities, prosecutors are acting essentially as public officials. Public officials throughout the country make discretionary decisions on whatever matters they have power over. And you deal with that mostly through accountability in the electoral process. You don't deal with it through other kinds of punishment. And so I think as important as this is, as, as we started out by saying, prosecutors have enormous power, the power to destroy people's lives, and they make discretionary decisions about how to use that power. And when those decisions are really, really bad, there's not much that anyone can do about it other than waiting until they've finished serving their term. On that note, Professor Green, Professor Royfi, thank you for sitting down with us today. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.